text of this sermon is in 2 Timothy, the second chapter. 2 Timothy is near the end of the New Testament, so if you have a little bit of trouble finding it, why don't we just turn to the book of Revelation and take a left and work back to the book of 2 Timothy. It's one of those pastoral epistles that's kind of tucked away back over to the back, but has a tremendous message. So if you find 2 Timothy, I'd like for you to follow the reading. It begins in verse 3. In fact, it'll be verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who, has, who enlisted him as a soldier. One of the most impressive things about Jesus was the company he kept. I mean, for a religious leader, he had the strangest friends. And sometimes he found somebody in the strangest place who brought the greatest delight to his heart. Perhaps the, grace, the best illustration of the fact that our Lord found in the strangest places great human worth is in the account of Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 5, where he con is confronted by a centurion. Um, this official of the Roman army who had a servant who was ill. And there is much about this military man that pleases, that he would be concerned about his servant is impressive, that he would come to Jesus and seek his help is admirable. But the kind of faith this man possessed was such that he prompted our Lord to label it as the highest kind of human faith he had yet encountered. It is worthy to note that the kind of people that impressed and pleased our Lord were the people of faith. And this man expressed his faith in military terms as he stood there confronting Jesus. He said, sir, it's really not necessary for you to come to my house actually to minister to my servant. I recognize your authority. I too am a man of authority. I say to, to one, do this, and he does it. I say to another, do that, and he obeys. All you have to do is say the word and it shall be done. And here was a man who did not have the background of the Jews, nor did he have the teaching that these Pharisees, these uh, disciples had. And yet he had a faith that neither of them had ever experienced or had ever come to. And it's mind-boggling. That here was, a man, here was a man who was no mystic. He did not have a mystical mind. He was a military man, a fighter. He answered with a sword. He was an officer in the military. And yet, 
he more closely met the mind of the Master and he understood Jesus better than all of the others. And it just might be that for you and I to really understand what it really means to be a Christian, we might need to think of that in military terms. For after all we do sing, like a mighty army moves the church of God. No one ever equaled so completely the complete call of Christ as did the Apostle Paul. His entire life from conversion to consummation was just one expanded commentary on the faith of this centurion I've just illustrated. And it's obvious that the Apostle Paul thought of Christianity in military terms. And there are two significant statements he makes, one at the beginning of his conversion and one near the end of his ministry that show that for Paul, being a Christian meant that we have a commander to follow, a call to face, and a challenge to fight. At every opportunity, on every occasion, the Apostle Paul gave his testimony. He told about how he had encountered Christ on a Damascus road and how this Christ had changed him. And as soon as he was aware that it was really Jesus, the living Christ that he was confronting on this road, he recalled that he said, Lord, what would you have me do? For the Apostle Paul, to be a Christian meant that we have a commander to follow. And it is indeed at this point that so many of us miss the thrilling stimulus, the central idea of the Christian life. It is the one great axiomatic factor of Christianity, and we miss it. It is this. To know Jesus Christ as Savior necessitates surrendering to Him as Lord. To know Jesus Christ as Savior means that I bow to Him as Master. Now this means that becoming a Christian is not a matter of three easy steps and following some rule book. It is the dedication of a life into the loving, able, saving hands of Jesus Christ. It is linking your life by faith to the only Savior, the best friend, and the greatest power that the world has ever known. A young girl said to a missionary, what does it take to be a Christian? And the missionary said, honey, it just takes you. A Christian is a person who not only believes that Jesus was, but he believes in Him with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. And this is what challenges the best in Christian people. Far too long we have told our young people, you come to church for a year and we'll give you a pen. And we should have been telling them, Jesus Christ demands your life and your soul and your all. That's what challenges the best in people. And in the last six months, literally hundreds of young people have come down the aisles of this church and down to this altar. And they have said, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to go where He says. I want to do what He says. 
And I've said to some of them, do you know the cost that Jesus is going to demand on your life? And they say, we care not. We want to give our lives to Christ. Far too long we have begged people to come to God's house and we've coaxed them until we have kind of felt that we have effected a great sacrifice if we come for one nervously clocked hour, sometimes yawning hour, wondering if I'm going to get out in time to see the kickoff or if I'm going to get out in time to go to the lake or if I'm going to be able to make it over to Aunt Mary's house this afternoon or if I'm going to beat the Methodist to the buffet away with that stuff. You're not a Christian until you love Him more than husband and wife, mother and father, even your own children. That's what the Scripture says. We have a commander to follow. And sometimes the only thing we know about where we're going is that that's where He's leading us. And so he got his disciples together in the upper room and he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know where I'm going. And Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. Sometimes the only thing we know about where we're going is that it's where Christ leads. That's true in your life. It's true in this church. Simon Peter didn't know too much about walking on water, he had not had any history of that experience. He had never done that before. But when Jesus said, it is I, come to me, he crawled out of the boat and began to walk on water. We've never had anything like a television ministry here. But if Jesus commands it, our, our obedient response is what he demands and nothing less. Picture yourself today getting on an airplane in Dallas... Fort Worth Airport with a friend. He's not traveled much and he's never flown. He gets on ahead of you and to your amazement he bolts in there and goes into the cockpit <laughs> and he shoves the uh, co-pilot over and he said, I want to sit down here a minute. He said, I want you to tell me, can you guarantee that I'm going to make it on this trip? Guarantee me that I'm going to have a success. How are you going to get this thing off the ground? Can you prove that you can? And where is your flight plan? And tell me why you're going this certain direction. And what about the wind speed? And what about these little dials, all of these dials on the, on, on the, uh, uh, in the cockpit? Can you prove that every one of them is accurate and correct? And it'd just take about five minutes and the security people would be ushering him off the airplane saying, the cockpit is off limits to you. The command of this ship is in the hands of the captain. And so it is with your life. The command of your life is to be turned over to the loving, able, saving hands of Jesus Christ. You have a commander to follow. That's what he meant when he said, long time ago, come and follow me. He was not advising those people to go to church or even to the synagogue. His primary invitation was not to belief, but to commitment with consequent involvement. And it's amazing that the first people who followed Jesus followed Him before they knew who He was. For the revelation of His character, which came in the 16th chapter of Matthew, came much later than the initial response to His call in the 4th chapter of Matthew. 
What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that Jesus Christ says to you, come and follow me, and I follow. I have a commander to follow. And if I know that I have a commander to follow, I have, a, I have an awareness that I have a call to face. For commanders command and good soldiers obey. And so when Paul was aware that Jesus Christ had indeed encountered him on the road to Damascus, he said, Lord, what must I do? Emphasis on do. For the apostle Paul knew that being a Christian was more than someone you follow. It was something you do. Now, I've thought a lot about what God has in mind when he calls out a church. Now, I don't know all that's involved in what God had planned for this church when he uniquely separated it and, 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 and uh, he gifted it and equaled it. But I know this that what God has for the church is not that the church becomes some kind of an automat that dispenses pep pills to the fatigued and tranquilizers to the nervous. It's got to be more than that. But that's the concept that some people have of the church. I've, I've talked to some, and you ask some people, why do you go to church? And they'll say, well, it just makes me feel better. One lady told me one time, she said, I just get a facelift when I go to church. Well, that's great. But the church is not primarily in the cosmetic business. Christ meant for the church to be this moral and spiritual lighthouse that guides people who are lost in the seas of life around and away from the jagged edges of sin's rocky shores into a haven of peace that only Jesus can give. And the company of Jesus was not a group of people who were streaming to the church or to, to a synagogue, nor is, it, nor is the company of Jesus just a group of people who make up an audience for a speaker. The company of Jesus is laborers who are engaged in, in a task of reaching out to the perplexed and bewildered of the world with something so vital that if they receive it, it will change their lives. That's what we're about. And if your idea of the Christian life is like, like this, I'm going to come down the aisle and get a ticket that one day admit me into heaven, you might better listen as Jesus spells it out again. And he said, If any man comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily and follow me. That's what it means. That's the call. And when the commander was asked about commands, he said this. He said, There is one supreme order it's this you shall love the lord your god with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength now how did the apostle paul measure up to that i tell you that his heart the love he had in his heart for god was proven by his commitment in his mind and in his strength how did he measure up well, he became a mental giant in an age that produced some of the smartest people who have ever lived. His whole intellect was committed to God. 
In an age of geniuses and intellectual giants, he was one. And he never worried about, never doubted his faith because he took some time to know, to learn what God's Word said about his faith. And he knew where he was going because he took some time to find the truth of God's Word. Now, how do you measure up? Every day of my ministry, somebody comes up to me and kind of timidly says, you know, I just don't know what we believe. And my answer to them is, have you ever taken the time to find out? And you go into these Sunday school rooms on Sunday morning, and the empty chairs that are sitting in there will say to you, many of the people who call themselves Baptists in Durant, Oklahoma, do not love Jesus Christ with all their mind. And there is in our history a man named Hubmeyer. He was a man who, who began to study the Scripture and came to a radical and revolutionary belief that ran against the grain of the church. But he believed that, and he was committed to that truth after searching the Scripture. And the result of his commitment, he was cremated. And you compare that to the greatest heretic in all of history, the average American who says ignorantly, it's not what you believe that matters, it's if you're sincere. And I want to tell you that that abuse of the God-given brain has set Christianity back a thousand years. Now I hear the wheels turning this morning, a few other things. Some of you are saying, well, I'm a preacher, I'm a busy man. I've got a business, I've got a family to take care of. I don't have time to do all this Bible study and, and, and Bible searching. And I believe that you're sincere in that response, but can I ask you to do something for me and for yourself this week? Would you put a piece of paper on the top of your television? And would you just mark down the number of hours you spend a week, a day, th this next week, watching television? Billy Graham says that five, the average American spends five and a half hours staring into that thing. And what we might do is to take this, this old Bible off the shelf and blow the dust off and separate those unseparated pages and beginning to study to show ourselves approved, a workman unto God who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, and love Him with all of our mind. And the second part of that order He gave was that we love Him with all of our strength. How did the Apostle Paul measure up? Well, he died at a very... At, at, at a relatively early age, I know that his head was chopped off and he didn't have that much choice in it. But it's interesting when you discover that toward the end of his life, he called himself the aged apostle. And that terse statement sums up the love that that man demonstrated to the Lord and for the Lord. It sums up the sleepless hours he spent and the thousands of miles he traveled and the peril and the sword and the conflict he endured for Christ. He literally laid his life out on an altar for God. 
And without stating it, he could have presented his own body as exhibit A when he challenged the Romans to present their bodies a living sacrifice unto God. He could have said, do it like this. Now I believe this with all my heart. Every child of God ought to be in God's house when God's people meet to worship. Every time. And I believe that every Christian worth his salt will make a concerted effort to share his witness. For once your life has been touched by his changing power, you cannot leave it there. You cannot leave it there. And I believe every child of God ought to begin a concerted, systematic, regular time of prayer not as a six-year-old writing a letter to Santa Claus, but as one who agonizes over the kingdom and over the expansion of the gospel. And I believe every Christian ought to give a first tenth of his income as a tithe. I have no apology when I say that. For a Christian whose life is committed to Christ has no problem with tithing. For money is an extension of our personality, shows us what we love, where our interests are, what is vital. And I was reading the result of a Gallup poll this week done for Robert Schuler's group out in California, and this thing is mind-boggling, staggering, the result of it. It says this, that less than 50% of, of, of the people polled, which is a cross-section of American life, less than 50% of those people believe that Jesus is divine, that is, He is uniquely God. But yet, now are you listening? Yet half of those people who do not believe that Jesus is divine consider themselves Christians, and that's staggering. But a greater result of that poll is this, more alarming result of that poll is this, that everybody they polled who said they believed themselves Christian, they lumped in one section over here, 45% of those who claimed to be Christians said they didn't believe that religion was important to them. And 51% of those who claimed to be Christians said that they have absolutely no interest in following the example and the teaching of Jesus Christ. I tell you, we have a call to face, a call to commit your life to Jesus Christ, soul and mind, strength and body. And that leads us to the final demand, that is, that we have a, that we have a challenge to fight. That is, we're called to get into this business of serving Christ now. I want you to notice with me again, verse 4. He says, no soldier in active service. It's, um, in the King James, it has it, no soldier who warreth. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. You know what that's saying? It's saying that, that when you're called, on to a, called to a campaign, the only thing you can do is to soldier, you know. Um, when you're called to be a soldier, that's the only thing you're free to do. Now, when peace is declared, you can go back to your business and you can go back to your merchandise but when you're called to be a soldier, the only thing you have a right freedom to do is to soldier. Because in that ancient 
time, that ancient day, they didn't have standing armies. And so if war was declared, they just conscripted these people. And the plowman was taken right out of the field and his plow was left in the furrow. And the web was left in the loom. And the bridegroom hurried from the bride and the the mourner from the bier. And they went off to war and that's all they did until peace was declared. That's what he's saying. Now I hear the wheels turning again and you say, man, this is really radical, preacher. Are you telling me that as a Christian I'm supposed to leave my business, leave my family, and just go down there to church all the time? It's not it at all. As a matter of fact, where, are you, to do, where are, you are to do your conflict, your warring, is out there in your profession and in your prayer closet to be sure. And the key, key word to this whole demand is the word entangleth. Now watch that. He said... If you've been called to be a soldier of the cross, you're not to be entangled in the things of everyday life. Key word entangled. It means this. It means the primary business of everybody in this room today who claims to be a Christian is to be a Christian. The primary function of every one of you college students is not to get a degree. Not the primary or to teach your class, or to, or to do your business, or to farm your farm. The fri- primary function of every Christian is to be a Christian. That's first. And the primary aim of every one of us is not to make money or to be successful. The primary aim of life for every one of us is to please Him who called us to be soldiers. That's first. And if anything you're doing, whether it's in your vocation or your avocation, if anything you're doing is causing you to, causing a hindrance to pleasing Him and to doing the work of a Christian, Paul, Jesus said, if it's your eye that's offending you, take it out. For the main business of this Christianity is to be a Christian, genuine Christian, and to please God. That's it. It's as simple as that. This preacher was on XCG. That's a station in Del Rio, Texas, you know, where they do all that goofy stuff. And, and he was telling about, he said, if you'll send me some money, he said, I'm going to send you a, a genuine simulated necklace, pearl necklace. Now, if you go and look in the dictionary at the, at the definition of the word simulated, it's, it's the, it, it means fake. <laughs> it means... Uh, a phony. Now what he was saying was, you send me your money and I'll send you a genuine fake necklace. <laughs> now, what Jesus Christ seems to be saying, no, no, that's what, what, he, what he is saying when he called men is this, I want the genuine article. I don't want a fake. I want a Christian. I want a genuine Christian. I want one who understands that he's putting his life into my control in my hands. I want one who understands that I am calling him to a commitment and a challenge that demands everything he has. It demands everything he is. My soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, Shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? 
Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Should I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a a friend of grace that leads us on to God? Sure, I must fight. If I should reign, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Now, these are not words that Jesus would say if he were here. I tell you, my friend, these are words that Jesus has said because he is here. And just as surely as he walked by a sea and said to men, I want to be your commander, follow me. And just as sure as he said, this is the supreme order, I want you to love me with all of your heart and soul, mind and strength. And just as surely as he indicated, it's time for us to put on the armor and get on with the extension of my kingdom. He says it now. Will you follow him? Will you? Will there be some young person who will get up and down, come down this aisle to say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ? Will there be some adult who will get up and come down this aisle and say, I want to place my hands in the loving, saving, able, controlling hand, God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus Christ, for his call to us. We thank you that to be a Christian means we just follow Jesus, trusting Him, believing Him, loving Him, doing what He would say. And I pray this morning, Father, that there will be those of us who will come today to give our heart to Christ. Because I pray in Jesus' name, amen. They got home one day. Abraham Lincoln was with this friend. He said, the friend said to Lincoln, how'd you like the preacher? And he said, it was a great, good voice, tall man, authoritative. He said, no, I really meant, how did you like the sermon? He said, I didn't like it. His friend asked Lincoln, why didn't you like it? Lincoln said, because he didn't tell us to do something great. I'm going to ask you this morning by the authority that's given me as a minister.
to do something great. To come, if you're not a Christian, and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You can know Him personally. You can follow Him. I'm not asking you to come and, and, and learn the rules and follow the ritual, etc. I'm asking you to come and link your life by faith to Jesus Christ. If you've never been saved or if you've never publicly stepped forward before others to say, I want to give my heart life to Christ, you'll need to do that right now. Baptism is the public demonstration of that. The second invitation, these are simultaneous invitations. They're all at the same time. You need to come maybe and give your heart to Christ in rededication of your life to say, I've not been living for Him and serving Him like I should. Or to come thirdly, to come and say, I want to join the church. This is the place where God has brought me and these are the people that I want to love and serve with and help. Now, it's easier to come on the first verse, on the first word, and all of heaven will break out in rejoicing as soon as you do what God wants you to do. Let's do it. How about it? Who will be first while we stand and sing?